All right, well, welcome back to Colossians. Uh, We're drawing near to a close in our series that we've been in for most of um, this first half of the year. If you've got your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 2 through 6 today. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, then down the middle row of seats, there's two Bibles stacked uh, underneath those chairs, and you can use that as we're reading the scriptures today. And you're welcome to take that with you as our gift from us to you. So Colossians chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. We're going to read these out loud together. Here we go. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that the God may open us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for a beautiful sun and a beautiful day that reminds us of uh, your great grace toward us. We thank you, Lord God, for the gathering of your church today. And we thank you for your word. God, we pray that we would hear something in this uh, just directly for our own souls. God, we pray that you would, through your word, both uh, convict us of sin, challenge us in regards to what we're supposed to be doing as people following you. And then, Lord, I, I pray that for those here who, who just need uh, to be uplifted, who just need to be encouraged, that you would even do that through your word today. And we pray that in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You know, someone once said that um, three of the hardest and, and possibly three of the, the least appealing things that Christians are commanded to do in the Bible are praying, fasting and witnessing. Would you all agree? Some of you would. We find two of those here in, in this passage today. So very likely we're all going to come away with just, you know, a little bit of challenge from the, from the Holy Spirit as we listen to the word. Um, perhaps a couple of your toes may be stepped on. Um, but I think mostly we're going to be encouraged that that, um, that God wants us to keep pressing, keep pressing uh, as proclaimers of the gospel in the place where he has set you, that you are his agent right where he's he's put you. And so we encounter two of these things, primarily prayer and witnessing in this text today. We are in the stretch in our study in in Colossians. Today is a transitional text. Paul has just throughout most of this um, this short letter uh, told us he's, he showed us very vividly. This is who Christ is. This is what it means to live redemptively um, in light of a preeminent Christ. And so today he's going to, as he's done in, done in many of his letters, you can look in Thessalonians and Ephesians, uh, Philippians. Uh, you can see at the end of it, Paul usually exhorts his readers about prayer and then about their mission, about Christian witness. And he does that for us today. And uh, I think you'll be encouraged by what you what you hear today. Uh, two things I think Paul is telling us. And the first is, is simply this, that we're supposed to speak to God about people, speak to God about people. And this means that Christians are supposed to pray. Jumping into the text, verse two says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with 
thanksgiving. You know, there's perhaps no subject more perplexing to Christians than prayer. Here's this. I'm going to read a long quote. I've got my Kindle up here. I'm going to read a, a quote from one of my favorite books on prayer. I wouldn't call myself um, a, a great prayer. I know I'm supposed to pray. I do pray. But, you know, prayer can be hard sometimes. And I've read a lot of books on prayer. This book here, A Praying Life by Paul Miller, is one that I would recommend to all of you, all of us. One day we'll go through this as a church together. But just listen to these words from from Paul Miller in regards to prayer. He says the American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. I say amen to that. We're so busy that when we slow down to pray, we find it uncomfortable. We prize accomplishments, production, but prayer is nothing but talking to God. It feels useless as if we were wasting time. Every bone in our body screams, get to work. He goes on to say one of the subtlest hindrances to prayer is probably the most pervasive in the broader culture and in our churches. We prize intellect, competency and wealth because we can do life without God. Praying seems nice, but unnecessary. Money can do what prayer does and it's quicker and less time consuming. Our trust in ourselves and in our talent makes us structurally independent of God. As a result, exhortations to pray don't stick. Then he gives us some, uh, some information about the oddness of praying. He says, it's worse if we stop and think about how odd prayer is. When we have a phone conversation, we hear a voice and can respond. But when we pray, we're talking to air. Only crazy people talk to themselves. How do we talk with a spirit? with someone who doesn't speak with an audible voice. And if we believe that God can talk to us in prayer, how do we distinguish our thoughts from his thoughts? Prayer is confusing. We vaguely know that the Holy Spirit is somehow involved, but we're never sure how or when the Spirit will show up or what he even means. Some people even seem, uh, some people even seem, excuse me, I had to turn the page. Some people seem to have a lot of, the spirit, but some of us don't seem to have any of him. Forget about God for a minute. Where do you fit in? Can you pray for what you want? And what's the point of praying if God already knows what you need? Why bore God? It sounds like nagging. Just thinking about prayer ties us all up in knots. Has this been your experience? Paul Miller says. If so, know that you have lots of company. Most Christians feel frustrated when it comes to prayer. Any of that uh, ring true in your own hearts? I see a few heads nodding. I, I would echo all of that. I mean, why, why is prayer so difficult? I've got a couple ideas. These aren't necessarily um, the I, I'm going to give you a couple ideas about prayer. And this is all preface to what we'll talk about in the text. So this is just background information. We're talking about prayer. We don't talk about prayer a lot. And so I'm taking the opportunity just to whet your appetite. And I think behind this idea of the difficulty of prayer, firstly, is we have to remember the storyline of the Bible. The storyline of the Bible helps us understand why prayer is so difficult. God made the world perfect. He put um, Adam and Eve, the pinnacle of creation, in the midst of this perfect environment. And there was seemingly very good, possibly even perfect communication with God. Scripture says that Adam and Eve were walking in the midst of the garden. God gave them things to do and God would show up and they would have fellowship with him. God would speak and they would they would hear it. Then, of course, 
Adam and Eve did what God said not to do. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sin comes into the world. Sin interferes with the, the antennas between Adam and Eve and God himself. You all remember those. Now, this is a young crowd. How many of you even remember uh, the old t- the tube TVs that used to be like this wide and this deep? You know, when I grew up, there was no cable. Right. I remember the day we got cable. Um, remember, my brother and I, we were we were sitting on in the kitchen, just our eyes glued to MTV. That was when MTV used to have actual music and, and videos. Now it has st- other stuff that you probably shouldn't want to watch. All right. So, you know, your your tube TVs antennas going up and you like turn those antennas to get a, a good signal. Right. So the fall comes and the antennas that are emanating from Adam and Eve that that naturally should have communicated with them, that should have made their their both their transmission and their their reception of communication with God were damaged. They were bent. And that happens with everything in the world that should be communicating with God. And here's the thing about the the fall, Adam and Eve's sin. The the, the bad part about it is the thing that ruined their communication with God was not external to them. It was them. It was themselves. It was their own rebellion and their own sin. And so God comes with a plan of redemption. He sends Jesus and this Jesus comes and by his work in life and his work on the cross, he helps to restore our reception and our communication. He dies in our place on the cross to restore a, a modicum of our ability to communicate with God. But even then, it, it's, it's fair to say we don't have perfect communication anymore. It, it's not like Adam and Eve walking in the garden with God. We still have difficulty hearing God and As most of our lives prove true, we have trouble even sending out signals to him that we love him, that we need help. I'm in distress. Come, God. It's it's just a hard chore for us. And all of this is because of the fall. That's the first thing that I would tell you. And so one of the things I think God gives us prayer for is to encourage us in life and to give us some direction. That's what prayer is for, although it's hard. The second thing that I would uh, encourage you in regards to prayer in the backdrop of this this passage here is our biggest mistake is to to make prayer about prayer. And Paul Miller brings this up in his book. That's why I say it's a great book for you to read. He likens prayer to going out to dinner with with two of your great friends. Larissa and I have uh, very good friends. They happen to be church planners in the city of Richmond. They plan uh, about six to eight months ahead of us. We don't see them often. Obviously, we're leading a church here. They're leading a church down in Richmond. And so we usually do date days. We'll meet midway between Richmond and here, like Fredericksburg or so. And we'll go out to coffee. You know, that's what adults do. Go out to coffee. And this is how, how life is with, with us and this, this couple. Uh, we won't communicate with them for months. And then we'll show up. And it's just like, I mean, we're like chattering up. I mean, it's, it's, it's an unending conversation. Um, the last time we got together with them, we spent three, I think, three or four hours in a coffee shop. I don't remember an idle moment where the conversation stopped. And so Paul Miller says that that really is a good demonstration of what prayer should be between us and God. It's not about the conversation. Larissa and I don't break out our notepad and say, let's talk about this. And then let's talk about this. Oh, let's ask him about this. Although there is a little bit of that going on. It's just a free flowing conversation that happens naturally. And we're more concerned with the relationship 
And when we're concerned about the relationship, the conversation naturally happens. And so prayer is supposed to be a conversation that happens naturally in our relationship with God. And then um, and then it's important for us to know exactly what prayer is. Go ahead and put this slide up. What is what is prayer? The Westminster Confession of Faith says that prayer is offering our desire to God in the name of Christ for things that agree with his will, confessing our sin and thankfully recognizing his mercies. I think this is a this is a technical definition of prayer as the Westminster Confession of Faith is supposed to do. But I think it articulates really what we should be doing in prayer. And if I could boil boil this down to a nutshell, you know what prayer is? is? It's asking God for things. God gives us permission to ask him for things. And so when the Westminster says prayer is offering our desire to God, it's like coming to God and say, God, I just need some stuff. You know, we get confused oftentimes. We're told that we're supposed to not just jump in and start asking God for stuff. We're supposed to worship God first. Right. Get our heart right. Confess some sin. The Westminster Confession says, go ahead and ask God for some stuff. Ask him. You don't have to be afraid to come and ask God for things. It also tells us it gives us some qualification. It said that we have to ask rightly, which means that there there is a confession. There is some confession, confession of sin. We have to be thankful, knowing that God is a God that extends mercy. But I like the second line here in the name of Christ for things that agree with his will. We we have to be uh, reminded that. Prayers that God receives and answers are going to be accordance to his will, because everything that we ask for, God ain't going to give us. And that's probably a good thing, because there's some things y'all ask for that you don't need. I should have got an amen right there. All right. As we jump into the text. Um, verse two, continue steadfastly in prayer, being uh, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Paul gives three directives here about prayer. The first is be steadfast. Be steadfast, Paul says, as he's instructing the Colossians at the end of his letter. That really means just be persistent, uh, be uh, persevere and not faint. Um, The Greek word here is the word to to be devoted. You ever been devoted to something? I mean, when a person is devoted to something, they may spend uh, a lot of time or perhaps all their time working on an activity, doing an activity. It's just in them to do it or they're they're so um, they're so. Um, diligent to, to do it, that they, they want to get better at it or they just enjoy it. That's what he's he's saying here. More importantly, he's saying sometimes prayer is hard. So you got to work at it. You got to You got to be diligent and persistent and consistent about it because of the fall. Prayer is no longer natural to us. It is, we're not going to always wake up and want to pray. Sometimes our sin gets in the way. Sometimes our pride gets in the way. There's all things, all kinds of things that, that happen in our lives that make it such that prayer is, is hard. It's a hindrance to us. And Paul says, you got to work at this because it's not always going to be, uh, be an easy thing for you to do. It's not going to be automatic. I think of a kid in a candy store. Um, you know, kids in the candy store, what do they want? They want candy. Mom, 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 can I, can I, can I, can I, can I? They say, My kids do this at the grocery store. That, that dog on checkout aisle, <laughs> they, they situate that stuff right where, right where it needs to be, don't they? And your kids just come by. We were in the PX this last weekend. Zoe picked up a pack, pack of Skittles. I was like, she's like, Dad, can I? And I was like, you got, a, you got any money? Zoe whipped out her dollar. I was like, go ahead on, girl. (laughs) Go ahead on. Paul says 
Remain persistent and consistent. It's not going to happen as naturally as it should. You have to be devoted. One thing missing from this exhortation from Paul about being steadfast, he didn't tell us what kind, of, what kind of prayer to be steadfast in. And so very likely he's talking about all kind of prayers. So when you're worshiping God, be steadfast. When you're confessing your sin, be steadfast. When you're thanking God, when you're, when you're asking God for all kinds of stuff, he's saying be, be persistent, be consistent, be steadfast, don't give up, do it. I, and I think the, the thing to remember more importantly He's given us permission to ask. Ask away, folks. Be steadfast in prayer. Ask God for the things that are going on in your life and the things around you. Ask him for it. The second thing he says is that we're, uh, he modifies this rather, saying we're supposed to be watchful. And this means to be alert. Um, we, this phrase was used by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The, the disciples, Jesus had gone off and prayed and he kept coming back, came back a couple times and what were the disciples doing? They were sleeping. All right. So this isn't this isn't necessarily an, an admonishment to to not fall asleep or uh, to stay awake. He's saying be awake and alert. But he's saying it in the sense of, hey, you got to be aware that Jesus is coming back. He's saying the time is short. We squandered some things. Be alert. Be watchful. Jesus has come and he's coming again. There's an urgency to our prayers that we should be uh, about. And lastly, he says with thanksgiving. And this is a reminder that prayer, you know, prayer is worship. When we're coming to God in prayer, we're actually worshiping uh, the God that can really answer the things uh, for which we are bringing to him. And this word from Paul reminds us that we should come with a thankful heart. Have you ever um, I mean, how would you feel if someone were coming to you asking for something? They came and I mean, they're just grouchy. It's like, would you do this for me? I mean, you would. Re- I mean, you would retort with that. It's like, no, get away from me. And so, he's, you know, thankfulness begets, you know, thank- thanksgiving begets thankfulness. I think as we respond to God with th- a thankful heart, he'll respond to us by asking, uh, by answering our, our prayers. Prayer flows out of a thankful heart, thanking God for who he is and what he's done. You know, I, I, sometimes thank, being thankful is hard. And one of the ways I think that you can encourage yourself to be more thankful is to remember the gospel. What does the gospel tell us? The gospel tells us that you don't deserve anything from God. The gospel says you did nothing to save yourself. Here's what Ephesians 2 says. You were dead in your sins. And then it, and, and it qualifies that with a whole bunch of stuff. Listen to these words from Ephesians chapter two. This is not going to be on the screen. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of di- disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I don't know if you can tell this, but those aren't nice words. And what God is saying is, is in our sin, uh, we're doing whatever we want, how we want to do it. Like Adam and Eve, we, we're rebelling against God. We're doing that thing that God said not to do. Paul is saying there's nothing good in us 
outside of the gospel, outside of Jesus. And and there's nothing good that would warrant God's favor in our life. That's what he's saying. But then listen, listen what happens as Paul turns the corner in Ephesians chapter two, verse four. He says, but God. But God. He doesn't stop there. He keeps on going. Those are those are precious words in the Bible. I would encourage you. Anytime you see the words, but God in the Bible, back up a couple of verses and see what comes before that. And and what you'll see is it's what sin does to our world and what sin does to our own hearts and how it manifests. And then on the other side of that, but God, you'll see the, the, the work of a gracious God on our behalf to people that absolutely don't deserve it. And this is what the but God says on the right side of that. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. He says, even when you were in your mess, even when you were messier than the nastiest diaper that you've that you've changed on your kid. That was <laughs> that was that was ugly. That was nasty. Because <laughs> I haven't changed a diaper in a long time. Even with that, God made us alive with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. What he's saying is, is, is God, by his spirit, gives us what we don't deserve. In fact, he not only gives us what we don't deserve, he gives us favor. He withholds what we do deserve. And through the person and the work of Christ, he gives us a spirit that would awaken us to who he is. And then he saves us when we don't even deserve it. That's what Paul is saying. And I would tell you, that's what you need to think about. And, and that should make you thankful. How do you what, how should you come to prayer? You should come being steadfast. You should come being watchful. And mostly you should come with thanksgiving, because when you have those, when you have these, then you're going to draw near to God. and He's going to draw near to you. Verse three and four. At the same time, pray also for us. That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul tells the Colossians what to pray for. He says, pray for us. He's talking about not just himself, but the entourage that's with him. Okay, and as we conclude chapter four, he's going to name off some names. Onesimus. Uh, Epaphras, and then a whole list of other people who are his cohort, who, you know, who he's commending to the Colossians for their work in, in, the, in the ministry, but also those who accompany him in the spread of the gospel. So he's saying, pray for us. We should know that Paul's not asking for anything personal. He's not, you know, he's, in, he's uh, imprisoned here. He's not saying, pray that I get released from prison. Pray that I'm refreshed. He's not saying, pray that I'm, I'm safe or that I'm free. He's saying, Pray for the advancement of the gospel. Pray for an open door. This phrase that he uses in this in this this verse here, that God may open to us a door for the word is is just him saying, pray that doors will be open for us both to share the gospel, to proclaim it and for it to be received by those to whom God would send us. We should note here that Paul is asking for. Prayers that the gospel will be open. And the, and the implication is it, there's there's some hindrance here to the gospel going out. He doesn't say exactly what those hindrances are. It could be political. It could be cultural. It could be sociological. It could be weather related. Um, in Philippians, we see that Paul, uh, Paul tells the, the Philippians when he was in prison, the gospel flourished because other people took up the work. He's not saying that same thing here. He's saying 
possibly there's some hindrances to the work of, of God uh, happening uh, amongst them in the Colossians, but also wherever Paul, Paul was. And he says, pray that doors of the gospel may be opened. And I think this calls us to also pray, um, to, to be reminded of ourselves, of the hindrances that, that we have in our own evangelism, mostly which is our own pride and our fear. Pray, pray that doors will be open for your own heart to gain courage. Pray for doors to be open with your neighbor and those you work with and those happenstance encounters that you have in the grocery store. Pray that doors would be open for God to use you to further the gospel and that others might come to faith. And then he uses these words, mystery of Christ. We've seen these words in Colossians one and two, as he's talked about the mystery of Christ, which is uh, the, the hope of, of glory. He's repeated these words uh, also in other New Testament books. And every time he does it, he's just uh, using that phrase to convey the gospel. You've heard me say this before. That the gospel, we, of course, in our day today, we use it as a Bible word. The word gospel is a Bible word. But in the first century, the gospel, it, it, euangelion is a Greek word. It means good news. But what it connoted was a, a herald, say a, a king and his kingdom had gone out to war or there was a big announcement, uh, someone being coronated at, uh, newly uh, or some big edict that had uh, just uh, taken place. And they would send a herald out throughout the province or throughout the kingdom and he would announce what the news was. This this realistic history making you know, epic news to all those that need to hear. And this is what the gospel is. And Paul is saying this is the, the, this epic news. This mystery of Christ is the revelation that God has come to atone for the sin of those who, who don't deserve it through the person and the work of Jesus on the cross. He's saying the mystery is that God breaks into human history in the form of the God man, Jesus The mystery is that salvation is available to all that trust in Jesus. And then he says these these last words in these verses. He says, pray that this mystery will come with with clarity. And um, this is actually surprising to me. It should be surprising to you because Paul was uh, I think Paul was brilliant, probably given the you know, he wrote 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. I mean, this is God's word to us. Um, Paul talks about his own, you know, he downplays humbly his own acclaim and who he was as a Pharisee. Pharisee of the Pharisees, his, his lineage and all that. But Paul is, is asking normal, everyday Christians like us to pray that God would use him. He's entrusting them to beseech God on his behalf. And then this, this idea of, of praying that the gospel would come through him clearly, with clarity, is kind of humble. It's humble for him to ask that. But it also beckons that we should be we should be asking those same things, that God would help us make the gospel clear. And here's another thing that I think um, there's an admonishment here is that we should be praying for all those who have the the duty, the responsibility to proclaim the gospel. All right. So as a pastor, I would say you all should be praying for me because Jeff needs prayer. I mean, you know that. Jeff, I'm just a man with a family. I need prayer. But we shouldn't always just be praying for our pastors. We should pray for all those who have responsibility to proclaim the word. Our community group leaders, 
they shepherd people in our church. They shepherd you, for those of you that are involved in the community group. Our kids ministry workers back there are, are sharing stories of Jesus to your kids that they might hear the gospel and come to faith. You should be praying for our kids ministry workers. You should be praying for yourself. You should be petitioning God for yourself that he would open doors, open ways for you to get beyond your your fear and your pride and that you would address your neighbor and, you know, those people that come in the your own jurisdiction and that God would use you, that he would tear down any inhibitions that you have. That he would give you the words, you know, not fanciful words, but just words to share your story, your testimony to those that might come to God through what you have to say. That's what we should be praying for. And Paul reminds us here in this text of, 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 of that. So the very th- first thing that Paul shares for us uh, in this passage is that we should speak to God about people. That means Christians should be praying. The second thing that he talks to us about is, is simply this, that we should speak to people about God. And that means Christians should be witnessing. We have a task uh, to, uh, to encounter, in, in, to, uh, to do evangelism. Verse five and six, we'll take these together. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Of course, Paul's talking about evangelism here. And I think five things are in view in these in these two verses here. The first thing he says is is walk in wisdom. You know, there's a lot of ways that I can explain wisdom, but one of the, the best definitions that I have come across is this definition here by, uh, by Pastor John Piper. John Piper says, wisdom is knowing what to do for the glory of God when the rule book runs out. Think about that. This, this is you, and you're like stuck. You know, there, there's, there, there's no instructions anymore. Um, you're at the end of your rope. You don't know what to do. And he says wisdom is knowing what to do when you don't know what to do. We all need wisdom like that. He continues, it's knowing how to become all things to all men without compromising holiness and truth. It's creativity and tact and thoughtfulness. It's having a feel for the moment and having an eye for what people need and want. I think this definition of wisdom actually um, summarizes everything that verse five and six are telling us to do. I think what John Piper is getting at is to walk in wisdom toward unbelievers is to understand the culture. This simply means you wisdom does come from God. And so God has to give us what we need to be able to to appropriately evangelize the people that he's putting around us at the same time. In order to do it right, you actually have to have your eyes open, your ears attuned and and sort of pay attention to where, where you are and who you're around. And so he's saying, know your culture, know the people in your culture so that you're more effective just in um, demonstrating by your life who God is. I think that's the exhortation here. I don't think anybody does this better than Paul in Acts 17. We're not going to I'm not going to turn there and read it. I talk about Acts 17 all the time. But you remember what Paul, Paul is on his first missionary journey and he comes to Athens. And as he's coming in. To the city of Athens, um, he uh, he struggles a bit because he sees all these statues and he he immediately immediately notices that the Athenians are idolaters. They're worshiping 
all these gods uh, based upon their statues. They had a God for everything, for rain and for agriculture and for sex. You name it. And then he comes to a statue that has an inscription to the unknown God. And then Paul has an opportunity to speak at the Areopagus, the, the Mars Hill. And this is a place that all the intellectuals, the philosophers of, of Athens would come and just talk. They give speeches on the, the newest thought of the day. And so Paul comes and uh, uh, orator, as Paul was, he comes and he's given an opportunity to speak. And he starts with these words. He says, I see that you're that you're religious by all the statues that I see. And then he goes on and expounds about the statue of the unknown God. And he says this statue of the unknown God, you think he's unknown because you worship stones and, and things like that. But I actually know who this God is. And he's the God that created the world and all that you see. OK. And, and then, of course, the rest of that is just beautiful words. Paul quotes one of their own poets, Epimenides. And he says, in him, this God that you worship, you live and move and have our being. And this God is the God man, Jesus. And so I think what the, the exhortation that I'm trying to give you is that is that we have the opportunity to, to have our eyes open to the culture around us and to actually notice who what people are doing, how they live what they're worshiping, and then we respond to that as we walk in wisdom. Secondly, he says, use our time well. Some of the older translations of the Bible um, translate this, redeeming the time, which suggests we've squandered some stuff. We squandered our time, and we've got to catch up. We've got to, like, roll this thing up. There's a sense of urgency that needs to, be, needs to happen here. One scholar translates this phrase, snapping up every, every opportunity that comes. And I think this means, in other words, you know, time... Um, time management is a spiritual activity. We have squandered some things in our own lives. We've taken opportunities that God may have given given us with our neighbors, with our own family members, with these, with those that um, those that he's brought right in front of us that that may um, incline themselves to God through our example. And we've just wasted it because of lack of courage or fear or pride. And he says, hey, use use your time well. And I think an issue here is is uh, is what Paul says in Second Corinthians five twenty. And in Second Corinthians five twenty, Paul is conveying this thought that we are ambassadors for Christ. That God is making an appeal through people like us, y- your frailty, your weaknesses, your failures, and all. And He's using you and every part of you to reconcile people who are far away from God back to Himself. That's what God is using you for. Paul calls you an ambassador for Christ. Thirdly, he says he says that we're supposed to be using gracious speech. And I think uh, in verse six, this suggests that we, we just can't say anything that we want to say. I'm reminded of, you know, the guy with the A-frame on. He's got a bullhorn says, repent. Are you going to hell? That, that's not gracious. In fact, I don't know. You know, it, there probably there are probably God can use anything. There are probably people that come to faith from a witness like that, but very few. Most, I think most of us come to faith when we see God's ways working in someone's life. And we want, you know, we, we're wondering, it's like, what makes you the way you are? Or how is it that you're so good with your family or your kids? Or why is it that I, I'm just drawn to you so, you know, so natural? I don't even know what it is about you. And Paul is saying one of the ways that people can be drawn to us is by our gracious speech. And I think what he's saying is our speech should be accommodating. It should be kind. 
possibly even charming without compromising our, our faith or compromising the truth. And then he uses these words, salty speech, salty speech. I mean, you ever can you imagine life without salt? The guys had our our monthly breakfast yesterday and the star of the breakfast was these thick, fat, salty bacon. I mean, gosh, it was good. I can taste it now. I need some bacon. Can you if, if there's no salt in the world, you couldn't even have bacon. That would be sinful. I don't know what salt does. It just makes stuff more appealing, doesn't it? I mean, my wife tells me the first thing you do with most meats that you're, you're cooking, grilling, is you add a little bit of salt and pepper. Salt just makes the whole world just work a little better, I think. I think that's why God just made, put salt in the earth. And, you know, this, this phrase is, is a little, little different here. Um, salty speech in our day is actually rude. It's, it's rude, obnoxious. It's a little punchy. And Paul is putting a little bit of this in here. Um, but more importantly, what he's saying is our speech should be witty, amusing, clever, humorous, sarcastic. Our speech should be like a comedian. You ever notice how comedians have this ability to make fun of us and all the ways that humans act and interact in the world? But at the same time, they, in making fun of us, they, they, they get us to laugh at ourselves. This is what he's saying here. Your speech needs to be salty. It needs to be on edge. And again, we need to be attuned to our culture. We, we have the we have the um, you have the opportunity to actually be critical, to critique the things that you see as you're observing the, the world around you, because there's some just think about it. There's some messed up stuff about our world. There's some messed up people about the world. He's, he's not saying. Um, uh, tiptoe around those things. But he is saying that in your opportunities to speak, you got to give a little grace. But at the same time, we're supposed to be observant about our culture and critique it. But when you critique it, you got to come back and give it a big bear hug. You got to love it, too. Don't be critical without actually being a part of it and loving, loving it enough that you that you want to see people come to faith and see solutions to the, the, the great tragedies of the world around you. And lastly, he says, we're supposed to answer each person. And the point here, you know, this, the gospel's the same. It doesn't change. But those opportunities that God gives us with each person are all different. Everyone's unique. And what, you know, I, 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 I grew up going to church a lot, but I never remember hearing the gospel. And it took, I, I had to get out of the environment of my home into a military context before I, I heard the gospel and read the Bible. And what he's saying is every person comes to faith differently and we have to be ready. We have to be um, attentive, attuned, but also equipped with um, just the wisdom of God to know how to handle the people that God brings our way. I like what first Peter says in regards to this first Peter three and five. I don't have my notes here, so you're going to have to bring it up, bring it up, bring it up. up. There you go. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Anybody ever come to you and say, why are you lying? I mean, what's good? What, what's so special about you? I can't figure it out. That's what he's saying. When you have these opportunities, open your mouth and tell them about Jesus. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is the same words that Paul is using. Gracious speech, salty speech, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ Maybe put the shame. I think uh, Paul is saying to do this, we need to be well grounded in our faith. 
All right, two implications and I'll be done. Two implications and I'll be done. And the the first one really is prayer precedes the mission. This is what Paul is is encouraging us here. We We need to be people of prayer. But in order to engage in evangelism, you need fuel. Your own personal life needs the fuel of prayer, of reconnecting you and your antenna to a God that, that's listening and that's ready to, in accordance with his will, respond to your prayers. And so pray away. But I think the, the exhortation here is evangelism without prayer is like trying to drive a car with no gas. Ever tried to drive a car with no gas? It goes nowhere. Not even going to start. Evangelism needs the prayer of the saints to fuel the mission. And so my challenge to you would be just devote some time to pray. Devote some time to pray for yourself. Ask away. Be confident that God wants you to pray. And, and, you know, if if prayer for you means I just got to, you know, I got a list and I got to ask God for some stuff, then ask God for some stuff. Okay, and then let the devotion come after that. But what what Paul is encouraging us to do is not just pray for yourself, but pray for the world around you. Pray for your leaders. Pray for the mission and vision of our church. Pray for those in our neighborhood that we would figure out how to communicate the gospel in ways that they hear it and would respond. Pray for open doors. Pray for the strongholds that we have in D.C. You know, we... Everybody worships, and especially here in D.C., we worship fame and acclaim and money and status. And once we get that, we leave. So pray for all those things and then pray that God's gospel would take hold here and people's hearts would be open to it and they would they would be receptive. To his word and to his gospel. And then the second thing is. In light of the things that Paul says in verse five and six. These directives that he gives us about evangelism. How are you doing in your own witness to the world? And I would just simply tell you, you can't have a witness if you're not involved. And so I, I think that the vision of our church is that you would be intimately involved in the, in the world that God has placed you in. In your neighborhood, in the people's lives that you, that you work around. Those God has put you there, Acts 17, 20, 25 through 28. He's put you there strategically to be um, to, to demonstrate his love, his kindness, to, so people would see who God is through you. You are his ambassador. And so do that. Be that in the ways that God uh, equips you and opens doors for you to do. Make a commitment to pray. I, I, and I would, I would encourage you to start simple. There's one person, you know, God put somebody on your heart today. One person that you, um, that's in your neighborhood, that's in your your office that you see habitually at the grocery store. I go to the same checkout aisle at our grocery store down here at Giant on purpose so that I would, over time, develop a relationship with the cashier. It's a, it, I usually go at night when my wife is sending me on errands. And it's a guy, he, uh, his name is David. And I go to his aisle on purpose so that, over time, I would, I would gain a rapport with this man. May God set somebody on your heart that you might do that with in whatever spheres that you live and work. Let's pray. Father, we hear your exhortation today to pray and that our prayer fuels our mission. God, we pray that we would be people who 
would be devoted. That we would not be that we wouldn't shy away from asking you for the things that that we need in life. But more importantly, as this passage of scripture encourages us to do, that we would be people that are steadfast, watchful and thankful about the business of your of your mission of being your ambassadors, of being your voice, of using our lives to walk through the doors that you open that we might be proclaimers of your great grace through the gospel. So, Father, help us in those ways, ways where we lack courage. Set our fears aside. We pray for opportunities to engage those around us with your good news. We petition you, O God, that you would not just use us, but that through our our, our frail efforts and even our failures, that you make yourself known and that you would gain fame. In Jesus' name.